Nerd Alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. Hello everyone, this is your host Arjun Paliwal and I'm joined by co-host Kent Lardner. Hi Arjun. Hi Kent. We are the Property Nerds and uh, today's Property Nerds podcast is going into a few headlines that we've got to share and we'll share our thoughts on whether we agree with them, disagree with them and then we've also got a really exciting deep dive on six must-know indicators when researching your next property investment. Now, for these six indicators, they're actually covered off in our top 20 regions report for 2021. So if you haven't checked that out already, you can jump on our website, thepropertynerds.com.au. We've got an introductory special on that report and uh, it's gaining a lot of popularity and we're really excited to share the top 20 regions that you should have your eye on in 2021. So Kent... Let's talk about some of these headlines. Some big headlines. It's pretty good. I have to say I agree with most of them. I'll start with the first one. The CoreLogic price index results came out and um, it's pretty much pointing in the right direction for housing everywhere. What it's done is it's highlighted Darwin as a standout location in terms of price rise. So probably the only thing I would be critical of there is for us, when we look at the market, we don't look at the price change necessarily as the lead indicator. We look at inventory as our lead indicator. And when we look at, say, the cities and the regions and where we would rank them at the moment, we would put ACT up at the top. Whereas if we look at that index, it would appear that Darwin's up at the top. So everything does point in the right direction. It certainly agrees with where the inventory trends are going, the prices are following. But the lead indicator for us is that index factor, which put ACT up the top, followed by Hobart, followed by Sydney. And uh, with some of these, you know, lead indicators, data factors, I can't wait to deep dive into them today. But I mean, with that headline, Kent, Darwin is alongside Perth. We're hearing a lot of underground commentary with regards to just market pressure, sales happening a bit quicker. So something's definitely starting there. I guess the key thing with that headline as well is, you know, just understanding some of the drivers behind markets like Darwin, markets like, you know, the WA and uh, the old iron ore, how that's coming along. So I think that'll be an interesting one to watch. What have we got number two in terms of headlines? Yeah, so um, just on that, on Darwin, yes, certainly days on market, it looks like about, you know, four or five days less month on month. So days on market is certainly starting to improve. Um, The next one was uh, rents plummet for CBD units as residents retreat. Now, we called that, I think, six months ago or a bit longer. We could see that early on in the vacancy rate data shifts. Certainly, when you applied the heat maps to that, you could see some month-on-month trends there several months ago, quite early in the year last year. So um, we can see that. What's happened, though, is behind or following on from those vacancy rate shifts, prices are starting to adjust, obviously. So rent moratorium issues, etc. As soon as you move out of that and the market starts to operate freely, we can see that correlation between vacancy rates or the number of vacant properties and the landlords making those adjustments necessary to get that property earning some money. 
And we can all agree the impact of the borders have been huge on these rental markets, especially in the, the CBD. Grattan Institute, you know, a couple of years back released some interesting data. And what they found was that people from overseas were typically renting for their first four years before home ownership That's came into the picture. That's a long time. And that was over 60%. So now to see a large number of that are missing, that's a big gap as well from where the renters are going. Yeah, and they're being lured into a lot of the house and land locations, very attractive to people, a brand new house out in the suburbs in a community, you can set yourself up, stay there for a long time. So it makes a lot of sense. You're exiting the rental space. And the detached building approvals have been spiking for houses. So that's a clear sign that some of these stimulus packages, the incentive for someone who's living in a unit to go, do I really want to be here? Is this my golden ticket to get into the house market, first-home buyer? And we're seeing that reflect in finance for first-home buyers, and we're also seeing that reflect in the first-home buyer approvals. So that's a big change. Are you saying I could have a home office with an actual room rather than the hallway in my one-bedroom unit in the city? Hey, hey, don't be mean to those Meriton, open up your door and there's a little study nook in your cupboard. Remember nice. those ones? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> third, third headline. And this is a good one. This agrees with everything we've been saying for a while. Regional home values outperform cities in the great escape. That is a massive trend. And you and I were talking about this over coffee just before this recording. And I'd love for you to share your 1% movement analogy. That was great. Well, yeah, it's pretty simple. If two thirds of the population live in the cities, it doesn't take too many people as a proportion, i.e. if 1% of the city decide they want to move to the regions because they can work from home, that'll have three times the size impact on the very, very smaller base, which is the region. So one person moving out of Sydney goes up and not only do they have a, an impact in terms of squeezing out the market with extra demand, they've got extra money. So they're certainly outbidding. And we've seen that. I Literally, we saw that in my street, a property that we thought would sell at about 1.1% has sold 200k above that from Sydney buyers who were just sick of the travel. And they've got excess, they've got surplus. And the key thing to understand, right, is it's not about the one person leaving Sydney and its little impact that that might have. It's like you said, it's that one, two, three people that leave and what impact they can create in another city. Well, that's it. And, and barely any impact at all, you know, a 1% drop is not going to be significant in a Sydney or a, or a Melbourne. But if that 1% all flood into uh, you know, Geelong, it's going to be rather significant. And that's you know the key, right? Because we're not saying, and no one's really saying that every office in the city is going to be empty forever. Like that's not happening. And so when we think of you know, migration or people leaving to these regions. I mean, if we take that June estimate by ABS with a net outflow from Melbourne at 7957. It's huge. Huge number. Now, it's huge for the regions because Melbourne, 8,000 people is a little dot when you think of the overall city size. But the outcome of the disproportionate change from our populations in our regional markets in comparison to our city this is where the big shifts happen. Yeah, and we haven't done the numbers on it, but anecdotally you could say if somebody goes into one of these regional towns with a pocket full of money to spend, then there's going to be little furniture shops and cafes and restaurants enjoying that as well. 
So there's a, a nice healthy injection of capital entering into some of these regional economies. And it's going to have a very, very long impact. I don't think it's going to disappear. And there are some white papers out of the state saying that the work from home movement could be around 5%, maybe higher. So here we are saying 1%, you know, it just rounds up, you know, a nice round even, even <laughs> number to talk to, but it could be significantly higher. So imagine that, you know, 5%. Imagine 5% of people deciding, hey, I want to get out. Yeah. Huge. That's huge. And this leads us on to the last headline I've got in front of me, which is RBA's three-year 30% house price growth predictions. So Kent and I had a moment to really dig deep into this. And we shared this as an article as well on smartpropertyinvestment.com.au. And what we saw was massive. And what we did is we looked into A, current inventory levels, and B, the shift in inventory over the last two years. Now, what we found was 52% of regions, based on just the momentum of inventory change, are likely to see this 30% house price growth over the three years. 23% were most likely, and 25% less likely. So this is a huge number. It's close to what 75% of Australia that's in a position to really hit that mark or almost definitely hit that mark. Yeah, and I think it also highlights the point that we raised that it's not one market. It's not one housing market. It's markets within markets. But we carve things up by what we call a statistical area three, SA3, very similar to a local government area. And what we do is we split those up and we do a lot of our modelling at that SA3 level. We focus very, very much on the housing market at the moment. It's our go-to. Unit market has a few weaknesses, especially in those high-density locations. But when we did this analysis, we looked at over 300 regions, and we looked specifically at the housing market. And what we arrived at was two-thirds of them, we could comfortably say we'd agree with that conclusion. And what that does mean is there is a third, or in this case, you know, 25% here, a quarter, that may not. So this is where it leads us to the next part of today's episode, and that's around key indicators that we need to have on our minds, need to have as a part of our research process in finding areas with that potential to perform. And why that's so important to consider is because, yes, 75% is a great number, but there's still a chance that you either buy a shoddy place in the wrong location that doesn't perform as well. And we want to help you minimize the risk of doing that. So, what we're going to go through now is the six key indicators, and I'll just give a shout out of what they are, and then perhaps we can you know, start defining each of them. So the first one we've got is building approval pipeline. So Kent, do you want to give us a shout out of what that means? Yeah, so this is um, published regularly. I think it's on a monthly basis. We get a regular update. It goes down to the SA2, but we roll things up to the SA3 level, as I mentioned. So we're tracking that. The beautiful thing about it, we can track at a dollar value, we can track at a, a building unit value, so how many properties themselves, and we can split it up by property type. So when we do a model for houses, we just use houses and we look at the building approvals there. And you typically apply a lag to that when you put it into your models because it takes time to get it approved and it takes time to build and flow onto supply. But you let the model dictate when that enters. So it picks up on it 
itself. So you put everything in there for the last few years and it determines when that number starts to become significant. So we can do that for units or we do that for units as well. And obviously with units, there's a few things to call out there. It takes a lot longer and not all of them flow through. Not everyone goes ahead as a building. So the housing model itself, the freestanding housing, the data's clean, the conversion rate is clean, and it works very, very well in the models. And with that building approval pipeline, the beauty of it is that you are ahead of time because houses don't fall out the sky. They don't fall out. I mean, look, some would say with how they're being built, they, they feel like they're falling out sometimes, just being built rapidly. But uh, when we look at this, we found sometimes a 12-month sweet spot up to 18 months because traditionally your three to five-month windows of building, a couple of months of you know executing and planning, going ahead from that approval. So this is where that 12 to 18 month is a sweet spot. Now, what other things that we noticed was looking at it in two ways. One way is the percentage of incoming supply against the current number of dwellings. So quick example, if we have 100 properties in a suburb and you've now got three properties approved, that's a 3% incoming pipeline with supply risk. And so when we scale that out to some bigger numbers with a couple zeros on the end, we often see that when the numbers start trekking a little bit above 3%, they start to be markets that we should be a little bit wary of, of many properties being built. Yeah. Arjun, I'd say the other metric that's of interest is looking at how many uh, properties are being built or how many building approvals there are relative to how many properties are selling. So that's another metric. So you can do all these ratios, but the one you mentioned in terms of how many extra dwellings is this as a ratio of the existing stock, that's a, a very, very reliable approach or metric that we use in our models. So that's the first indicator, building approval pipelines. Why is it important? We're looking at incoming supply risk. Now, there's always other things you can do, the the naked eye search in terms of opening up your satellite views, checking out the potential for available land, what's around it, and building approvals is the the other one we mentioned. So you mean a satellite as in a... Google, Google Earth satellite. type satellite. Got yeah, it. Everyone's got satellites around, don't you? Like- yeah. <laughs> okay. The second one, inventory levels. What does that mean, Kent? Yeah, so inventory levels is our lead indicator for a lot of things, it's certainly for price movement. So it's a standard metric that's used throughout North America. And what we do is we count up how many properties you would see listed for sale at any given time on an average day in a month for a given region or suburb. And we do the same thing. We look at the average sales volume for that particular region. And then we express that as a ratio. So the theory is this. If no other property were to come on the market, if, if we effectively put a moratorium, there was no properties allowed to be sold or listed again, how long would it take for everything currently listed for sale to clear out? How long to clear out that inventory? And that's expressed as months, months of inventory. So that's the metric. And anything typically... Below three is a very hot market or heating market, but we don't just look at the count of months today. We look at the delta, we look at the trend line, which is a really, really strong metric on its own. Yeah, and trend, snapshot, the two ways of looking at data, where is it today and how has it been moving over the last year, two years, so forth. So just to give an example of inventory levels, Kent, if we had, say, 30 listings 
in say, here we are recording in North Sydney. So if we had 30 listings and we have an average monthly sales volume of 10 per month, we're saying that that's a pretty tight market with three months of inventory. Yeah, three months is tight. Awesome. So what is an example of a bad inventory market? So typically anything above nine, we move straight into that buyer's market or a strong buyer's market category. So anything above nine, 12 months and above is very high risk. So, you know, we look at it relative to the trend, we look at relative to the broader area that it's in, but as a general guide, we look at what I'd call equilibrium or a balanced market around that six or seven month mark, and then you can split it up. So below three, you know, three to five, five to seven, and then above. So once you get above nine though, you're really starting to move into that the higher risk category. And Kent and I have used words that you might've heard from the last episode or this one, high pressure, within that zero to three months, modest pressure or, or seller's market starting to come together, three to five, balanced, five to seven, and then seven plus is, is that bias territory. And so what this means, right, is there's a really strong connection between inventory levels and the next indicator we've got, and that's days on market. Now imagine you are that person who's in a suburb selling your property with eight months of inventory in that suburb. Now, if you've just recently listed, imagine how long you're waiting for it to be your turn based on the monthly sales averages. So Kent, what exactly is days on market? Yeah, so days on market's typically measured as when you first see the property and you it's a cumulative metric. And what we then do is look at the first date of listing through to the date of sale. And then we take a median of that. So there are some limitations to that because you need to actually identify the property as a a real property with a real address for it to be counted. So in our approach to things, unless there's an address attached to it, it doesn't exist. It could be a dummy listing or it could be something that we could get wrong. So it needs to be an address that is matched. And simply put, we're saying speed to sell. Yep. You're getting it quicker, lower days on market. However, there's one key mistake I do see people make when interpreting days on market. The key thing to understand is that it's not always about whether it's low or high. Sometimes we have to also consider that market and what it's always been showing. And regional markets are a great example. If you had a look at a snapshot of a certain capital city, and then let's just say you went out to Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong, and you saw a days on market in the capital city that's much lower, it does not necessarily mean that that is a stronger pressure or a higher performing market because that higher regional days on market may have come off some pretty highs. And that big drop is the percentage change, right? Yeah, and certain sub-market groups behave differently. So lifestyle properties can take a lot longer to sell. So when we do this, we're throwing properties into one of two buckets, effectively a housing bucket and a units bucket. So the other limitation here, obviously, is that we might be in one of these regional or rural locations that's got a lot of farms or got a lot of lifestyle type properties. And they do take normally, under all circumstances, good markets, cold markets, doesn't matter, do take longer to sell often. So I think there's some of the things you just need to be aware of. And Usually it sorts itself out where the sample sizes are big enough. Where you need to be really, really careful with any of these things that we're talking about is when you've got very small sample sizes, small numbers, and that's where suburbs can get into a bit of trouble because you're dealing with a handful of sales and they do become quite volatile. So 
rolling things up into an SA3 region, as we like to do, does make things behave a little bit better. And cleaner is better when it comes to data. Yes. So those three indicators, building approval pipeline, inventory levels, days on market, they're our three of six indicators that come under our price bucket. Because essentially what those three indicators are is here's how many properties that are coming up over the next year or two. Here's the current demand and supply when you think of listings and the sales that are occurring. Is it hot, not hot, warming up? And lastly, here's the change in the speed to sell. So these price indicators, you can actually find them as part of our methodology on our top 20 investing regions report. So if you're looking for that and you want to figure out where we think are the top 20 investing regions, jump on to the propertynerds.com.au and now we're going to roll in to the next three, our rental indicators. So we've got vacancy rates first. So Kent, what's vacancy rates? Yeah, so vacancy rates, we count up how many properties are vacant, what's a vacant property, three weeks or longer it's been advertised for. So that becomes vacant. And then what we do is we measure that relative to how many properties are advertised by real estate agents. So it's not how many properties are rental properties in the suburb or the region. It's how many are advertised by a real estate agent. How do we know that? The ABS actually collects that data and they give that down to a very, very small neighbourhood level. So in this case, we're using it primarily at that SA3 level, but we also use it often and regularly at the suburb level. But they do make it available at a very, very small neighbourhood level, which is a pretty handy metric. So vacancy rates, we look at how many properties have been advertised for three weeks or longer. Uh, Just a call out here, we are finding a lot of suburbs have no vacant properties. So when you start to look at vacancy rates as a percentage, especially in these areas where there's small volumes of vacant properties, the vacancy rate can become really volatile. So I think it's an important thing to call out here that you you need to be very, very aware of the limitations of suburb level data. And then when you move up to the SA3s, what we're even finding now is that there are some regions where there's a handful of properties getting into that three week and above mark. It's quite amazing. Mm. So to give it an, a different dimension or give it some reality, it's always good to look at it as a percentage, as a vacancy rate, but to actually look at vacant properties as a count. And it's just a nice sanity check. Yeah, that's a very good point because that gives it some real feel and numbers to it as well, right? You can actually know who you're competing against in terms of the volume. Now, with vacancy rates, again, we talked about maybe nine months ago about the rents. That would be such a big indicator. And that's been a huge change off the back of the vacancy rates. And I've always thought of different numbers or percentage groups to categorize them in. I mean, I'll shout out some of my thoughts on categorizing vacancy rates, and they do differ from other thought researchers and professionals, but I find zero to 1% is the rental crisis. Yeah. And this is when I'm talking both good and bad things. Displacement within communities, that's the bad thing. Caravan stories, you start hearing that where people start missing out and they go, stuff this, I'm on. The next one is, you know, the good side of it, which is rising rents for investors and the one open home rule. You're likely to get multiple applications in the first open home in that zero to 1% range. The next range I like to call it is one to two. And I still consider this now as a tight market, not your rental crisis, but the tight market. The two to two and a half, this is where some would argue the three is their balanced point, but I feel the two to two and a half is my slightly more tighter but balanced point here. 
And then two and a half to three is when I start to get a bit cautious. I'm mm. like, hey, do we really see the merit in this location? Above three, renters, you choose your price. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is where vacancy rates can move on to now our next indicator, and that's rents. So I know we might say simple, what is rents, but what is really the rent and how do we talk about rents in terms of a data view, Kent, and what that means for investors? Yeah, so we've got two left, obviously, rents and rental yields. So jumping straight to rents, and we'll come back to yields. So the rents itself, we're typically looking at the advertised rental. Very hard for us to tap into the actual final lease amount. There are some data sets out there, but we can't access those, or you know, some people get access to it. But we're, we're using the advertised rental. So whenever we're talking about rental movement, we're looking at the median, the middle, of the advertised rental. And typically we split that out by house and by unit. So that's pretty straightforward. When we're talking about houses, we're looking to group together houses and duplexes in that situation. When we talk about units, we're talking about anything that's strata. So you're finding your townhomes are thrown in there as well. So that's a bit of a challenge with a lot of the data that we play with here because you know, sometimes you can say, well, look, a townhouse sits halfway between a, an apartment and a house and it does throw things out. So especially in those markets where you've got a fairly even split between townhomes and apartments and sometimes you can get a bit of a run on one particular property type or sub-market group as we call them. So there are some limitations to it, but we have to suck that up. And typically what we're doing is we're throwing all the townhomes and units together in one. And what we love to look at is those percentage changes, you know, just the straight out dollar value, the percentage changes, because as an investor, rising rents in a market that you're going into is a positive sign. And it usually comes off the back of our previous indicator, which is vacancy rates. Yeah. Now, jumping on to the next one, rental yields. Mm. What does rental yield even mean? Well, rental yield, the formula is we look at the annual rental expressed as a ratio of the purchase price. So that's the formula. And there's a couple of key things I like to call out with rental yields is most of the published rental yields looks at the median price or the median rent for houses and the median sale price for houses. And the problem you've got there is if you're buying a property that's not at the median, you don't really know if that's going to be the most likely yield. It probably won't be. And t- traditionally, what we have found is the lower price properties, the smaller properties, the bedsits have always had that higher yield. That's very common, still is common, but it used to be amplified 20 years ago. It was, you know, it was where you got all your yield was the small bedsits and the one-bedders. So what I always like to do is to take the median of a one-bedroom unit in terms of sale price, the median of a one-bedroom unit in terms of rent price, and use that to calculate the yield, which gives you a little bit more accurate figure if you're doing a quick analysis as an investor. And then the same thing through to your three- and four-bedroom property. So we capture all of those medians stratified by bed count for that reason, just to help people more quickly understand if their yields are going to be higher or lower depending on the property type or the property size that they're buying. And, you know, with that verification of those yields and the bedrooms, it just helps you really get the reality in terms of what you're likely to have as a return. And this leads on to the environment we're in, right, which is the low interest rate environment. And the word positive cash flow used to be a luxury, right? It used to be, wow, where do I find that? 
And it's starting to become a bit of a norm across most locations. Not all, but most locations. Simply because of rates that are starting with a two in front for investors and the rental yields being three, even in some of our major cities, uh, up to four, five, and six. So right now, that relationship between rental yields and mortgage interest rates is as tight as ever. And so when you're thinking of rental yields as an investor, that return is likely where you can start now doing your cash flow checks of, hey, is this going to be okay to hold? Because you know what? We found locations that have had tremendous inventory growth prospects and they've got low yields. But then at the same time, we found locations that are the same with higher yields. So I've always been quite open to the fact of, no, it's not this rent versus growth or yield versus growth game. You can look far and wide across Australia and see both. It's just about challenging that mindset around, you know, it's not about yield versus growth. You can see both. And would you agree with that? So it's not always a trade-off is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. So obviously I've you know, I deal with a lot of different buyers agents with different philosophies and there are those that look specifically at capital gains as the primary mechanism and, you know, look at – and if you're dealing with people who are wealthy people or you, they've got good cash flow, good income, it makes a lot of sense. But then you've got – I've got buyers agents who would look specifically at a different audience who would be very sensitive to the cash flow situation. You know, you lose a job and – you know, what benefit is negative gearing if you've lost your job? So there are definitely two schools of thought and then people in between. You know, so for me, I, I like when you say that it's, we look for the best fit and you're looking for the best fit for the individual client, right? Mm. It's not a one size fits all. Correct. And so there we have it. We've got six indicators. So just to recap, building approval pipeline, inventory levels, days on market, there are price indicators. Then our rent indicators, vacancy rates, rental yields, and rents. Now, Kent, these are a snapshot trending past. What about the talk of the future? Yes, machine learning. The robots are invading. So we put in several hundred data points, and we effectively put in time series data going back 10 years. And we structure this up. We've, I've tried it at a suburb level. I've tried it at an SA2 level. And the model that behaves best is my go-to, the SA3. And most recently, I've been predicting 12 months out what the inventory will be. I've been predicting out 12 months what the days on market will be and predicting out a number of other variables, including prices, etc. The cleanest metric is inventory. Days on market still works. But certainly the forecasting inventory has been a very good model. So typically what I'm doing, I take the data as of 12 months ago and ignore all the data since then, but take the current market conditions, i.e. what's the current inventory level. And that becomes my predictor, the thing I'm trying to predict with that data that's one year old. And then we crunch it and we say, how well did we do? What was the error? And we measure something called, they call it an R-square, but you don't need to do, worry about that. We just effectively, how well did we predict it within plus or minus? And we're getting well into the high 80s. Well, actually, for the last one I did, out of all the regions we processed, over 300, only two had an error, margin of error above one month. So it's a pretty good fitting model. But there are limitations to all this. There's always going to be disclaimers and whatnot, and you don't see around corners. So within the data that we knew at the time, 
if the data stays within those upper and lower bounds as of the time for the next 12 months, then there's a good probability that it'll still be similar level of accuracy. So it's a great way to predict. So machine learning has given us the ability to spin up literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of models using thousands of data points to spit out a prediction 12 months out. And that's exciting, right? Because as investors, we're trying to do our best to reduce risk. And so, you know, we can't wait to share more on that and that coming into play. At the moment, we're working on a bit of a platform. So a sneak peek coming up soon to be able to really change that from a report form to a platform. But if we take a look at these six indicators and we say, Kent, Arjun, I'm following along, but I just need a paragraph. So I'm going to do my best to put it into a paragraph here and try and say what these six indicators mean in a good way, right? So we're talking about X area. X area has low building approvals in the pipeline, which reduces the risk of incoming supply for houses. Current inventory levels are very low, which means there is a lower level of listings in comparison to what sells each month. As a result, days on market is falling due to places now selling faster with lower inventory and lower incoming supply. Hint, hint, prices. The rental market is healthy here as vacancy rates are low and have lowered a lot. Tenants should not be difficult to secure for your standard property. Rental yields are great and investors can expect a good return on investment. All while rents are seeing high pressure as they've been increasing as a result of the low vacancy rates in the area. So that is me trying to summarize. If you found a picture of all those six indicators in good data points, it would essentially read out like that in a paragraph. Anything to add to that, Ken? Well, actually, a question. When you're presenting this to a typical client in your business investor kit, I'll get a plug-in for investor kit, how well is this being received? Are some of these metrics well-known and some less known? Is inventory less known and how hard is it for you to explain it? Yeah, great question. So less known for now in terms of inventory, but we're here to change that because I feel it's such an important metric to look into. And we talk about often, and I explain this to clients, the difference between the what and the why. I can guess why a market's growing. You can guess why a market's growing. Someone who lives there will have a certain guess. For me, it could be infrastructure. For you, it could be the beach. For someone else, it could be the schools nearby. But all these whys could all be right together or one of them right and the rest wrong. And the problem with that is we don't know which one it is. So we got to stop looking at the why. And this is where data sets like this are the what. Because if we get the what right, we can feel comfortable. And now we sit back and play around with the why to see where we land. And I think that's the biggest thing for customers at the moment. When they're chatting to me, they're talking about, I feel so comfortable because of the what made me feel good. It's happening. It's real. Now, I don't have to play the guesswork with the why. We can feel comfortable about that after. So yes, that's the well-received part. But in terms of the what are inventory levels, we're getting there. We're slowly changing that. Yeah, Arjun, thank you. You're my portal to the real world while I sit in my little room with a spreadsheet all day long. <laughs> so investors, that's it from us and the six indicators. Now, if you're looking at where do I find these six indicators, once again, we've got two areas for you. Our data hub, free online, thepropertynerds.com.au. You can play around with different tools to check out your suburb, what's happening there. And then as for the top 20 regions, 
You can find that on thepropertynerds.com.au and you'll be able to see really where we think are markets that are likely to perform this year ahead. Game over.